Our scripture passage this morning is the concluding chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard this, heard him say this, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in a boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, Follow me. Peter returned. Sorry, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? 
When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. ECC did many other things as well. If every one of them were pictured and shown, I suppose that even if we spent all day together, we wouldn't have enough time to show them all. My little take on John 21, verse 25. But don't those pictures bring back memories? For some of you who were here from the very beginning, you saw yourself in those early days. And for those of you who were here last Sunday, perhaps for the first time, those last few pictures of the mass of humanity and the empty brunch lines and uh, uh, just all of these people together. It was so incredible to just be able to reflect back because pictures do bring those memories and we had so many to go through and we didn't want to spend all morning showing them. Um, but pictures bring back memories, don't they? Um, here's a picture that brings back a memory from just this past week. <clears throat> this is Pastor Adam at his ordination council on Tuesday evening. There were about 30 or so delegates from other Alberta Baptist Association churches, maybe another 70 or so people from TCC. And, uh, and this is him just before the Inquisition. And, uh, and Adam did a wonderful, masterful job of just answering questions and demonstrating um, just his preparedness in terms of his theological education and his ability to rightly handle the Word of God. And so an event that uh, I want to invite you to, a very special event in the life of our church and in the life of Pastor Adam, is his ordination service next Sunday afternoon at 4.30. Um, this is, uh, you know, many of you have probably never been to an ordination service. Maybe many of you will never have an opportunity to go to an ordination service. So I want to just encourage you to make that a priority. Put it on your calendar today so you don't miss it next Sunday afternoon. But you know, after this happened on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Tina and I were just reflecting on the evening and Tina's like, do you remember your ordination? Do you remember the kind of questions that you got? And, and, and I couldn't, but I did think that, you know, I think there's some pictures at least from my ordination service. So I went and grabbed a photo album from that time frame and I flipped through and, and sure enough, uh, I actually was ordained. Now, I don't have a picture up here for you, so I guess Pixar didn't happen, right? So... Uh, Anyways, it did, did happen. Well, as you've heard already from Pastor Ken, that uh, the first time that the church gathered in kind of a public way was in, uh, in April of 2003. And as you know, the church actually started prior to that as this small group that had gathered to pray. And once word got out that a new church was starting and Pastor Ken was leading it, uh, others quickly joined. 
And uh, Pastor Ken often talks about how, you know, they had a, a really huge, huge, like 65, 70 people on the first Sunday because there was a lot of people that were just wanting to cheer them on. And so they came as friends and family from other churches. Um, and then reality hit the next week when there was like 30 people. And then that gathered, continued kind of through the summer um, that there were maybe 30 people uh, throughout the summer. But really in that first year, and I was looking at some some stats. Um, in 2003, uh, throughout from, from April through to December, they averaged on a Sunday was 59 people. In 2008, that had doubled to 119. Now, they were, and I love that picture in there of, uh, of where they met. And so if you know Twilliger Town a little bit, uh, even if you don't, if you're on the Anthony Henday and you kind of, sorry, if you're on Twilliger Drive and you kind of look east, you see this church. So it was a church you could see but you couldn't find. And so that's why I love that one picture in there where there's the building of the church and the map outlined all of the roads that you had to zigzag over to get to Twilliger Community Church where, where it was meeting. But it was actually in 2000, up until then, the church met in the afternoon at 4.30. And so they went to the Anglican church and said, you know, we really would like to meet in the mornings. Could we meet in the mornings? And, uh, and so... I love this story because it ties into why we do brunch today. Because uh, they said, well, you can, but we need the service. We need the auditorium cleared by 11 o'clock. And so you need to be out of there by 1030. And so they're thought, how are we going to meet? Like, how early are we going to meet? Are people with families going to come at 930 in the morning? How are we going to quickly clear people out? And so I said, maybe if we serve like donuts and muffins and coffee in the basement, that'll, you know, be a draw and we'll get people down there. And, And then, of course, Bob in his wisdom says... Uh, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to be enough of a draw. You know what? I will serve a brunch. I'll put a breakfast together. And so in January of 2008, 15 years ago, this idea of brunch happened. And I remember then coming in 2009 for one of the first Sundays, and probably within the first three months there, I had breakfast or I had met and shared a meal with almost everybody in the church at that time. In 2009 then, we averaged about 170 people. We had outgrown the space at, uh, at the Anglican Church. And so we moved down 23rd Avenue to uh, what is Taylor Seminary. And we met there in the gym. And during that time, we call it kind of our season in exile. Because it wasn't a great place, but it certainly served its purposes. And uh, I was looking for pictures, wishing that the one spring where there was so much snow on the roof that as it started to melt. It was leaking into the building. And so we had chairs set up like this, but every so often the chair was replaced with a bucket to catch the dripping water during the service. Great memories. Anyhow, um, it was there then that we dreamt and planned and designed and raised money to build this building. And when we moved in here in 2012, we were already averaging about 310 people uh, on a Sunday. Then just a few years later, in 2017, just the year that we planted um, Southwest, we were at 458. And, um, you know, when I look at those numbers and I see where we're at today, uh, it really is an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness at TCC. When I look out on a Sunday morning like this, having been here now for 14 years from a much smaller church to where we are today, it's just been such a privilege to see God at work doing and just using all of us to do what he's been able to do. 
Now, I want to just, as I share a little bit about the history, about that, I want to talk a little bit about our future too. But I want to do that in the context of John chapter 21, the passage that was read for us. You see, since early January, or really late January, sorry, we've been in a series of messages that we've simply called Living the Life. And it was a study based on the last words of Jesus as found in John's gospel. And so today we come to this last chapter and the last message in this series. And I don't think the timing could be any more perfect. You see, chapters 18 and 19 of John's gospel were covered on Good Friday, and then chapter 20 last Sunday on Easter Sunday. And so all we had left was this chapter 21, and as you'll see, so fitting on this 20th birthday celebration. The invitation has been that by looking closely at these words of Jesus, we would discover the life that Jesus has called us to live. A life lived by following Jesus, who invites us to come to him in faith and then to follow him by living under his lordship and the authority of scripture. This is the life of a disciple of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 21. If you'd like a Bible, there's a couple on each of the ushers' uh, 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 little uh, cabinets there. And uh, you can grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those home. So let me just start by giving a little bit of a summary of John chapter 21. It's really an interesting chapter in that it kind of appears almost as an add-on to the first 20 chapters. In fact, there is some debate about whether or not John actually wrote this chapter. And part of the argument is that the last verses of chapter 20 seem to actually be a fitting conclusion, that John was kind of wrapping his book up with these verses, chapters, sorry, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 where we read Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, John states here in these verses his purpose for writing the gospel. He wants to share some of the life of Jesus. There was much more that he could have included, but what he did record was so that we might believe in Jesus and live the life that he has given us to live. Now, he could have stopped there. But I believe that chapter 21 is, you know, a bit of an epilogue for John. There were some unanswered questions. And it's likely that John did write this, this chapter, maybe just a little bit later, but soon enough so that it was actually included in all of the earliest manuscripts. And so John 21 is the record now of the third appearance of Jesus after the resurrection. The first one was on the day of his resurrection when he appeared to Mary and his disciples. And then a week later, he appeared to the disciples again, this time for the benefit of Thomas. And now, perhaps another week later, he appears again on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So let's go fishing with Jesus. The disciples had left Jerusalem and traveled the 120 kilometers back to Galilee. This was a familiar place for the disciples. It was home for some of them. In fact, in this particular record, there is only seven of the 11 that were there. It's not surprising that with the intensity of the previous couple of weeks that they would return to what they know. There they are processing the, you know, the what now. For three years they had been following Jesus, hearing his teaching, being trained and equipped, being discipled. Imagine that. Disciples being discipled. 
But now life and their purpose and mission was uncertain. And Peter, like us, finds comfort in the familiar. He finds comfort in what he knows. And so he announces he's going fishing. And others, not having much to do themselves, they join him. And so they go out at night because that was the best time of day for fishing. Fish caught during the night could then be sold fresh in the morning. And fish and bread were the mainstay meal in those times. Remember Jesus feeding the 5,000 plus? Bread and fish. And so they fish all night. Must have been a discouraging night because they got nothing. Nada. Zilch. In verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. So can you just picture this in your mind right now? The sun is just starting to rise. Jesus is standing on the beach. The boat is about 90 meters from shore. And the disciples in the boat don't recognize the man on the shore. Friends, have you any fish? It's almost as if he knew that they didn't. In fact, the Christian Standard Bible translates this this verse. uh, It's so clear and direct. It just says, friends, or literally children, you don't have any fish, do you? Now, if you're an experienced fisherman and you fished all night and you didn't catch anything, you'd probably be annoyed by the question. No. But it was an honest admission of failure. And I think there's something there for us to reflect on and just pause for a second. Have you ever felt failure in your own life? Maybe your efforts at work seem so unproductive. Maybe as a parent, You look at the end of the day and the house is turned upside down and the kids are screaming and you're just like, man, I don't have what it takes. Maybe even for those of us in ministry, it just doesn't feel like it's all coming together. In fact, all of it feels a little bit like empty nets, doesn't it? And I do think that we need to look at it from this perspective. I think the Lord allows us to experience frustrations and failure to ultimately bring us closer to him so that we would rely on him more. Because that's in fact what happens. Verse 6, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. (laughs) I'm sure the fishermen love to hear that. Advice from a complete stranger. Well, the seven disciples in the boat had a choice, didn't they? They could be frustrated at the question. They could be frustrated at their failure. Or they could respond in obedience. Let me ask you, what is Jesus calling you to do? Have you ever thought about that? 
You're in the boat, he's on the shore, and he's telling you to do something. Maybe it's something you don't even really want to do. Maybe you're comfortable with what you know. Maybe you know that following Jesus in obedience is going to mean giving something up. Maybe you have to walk away from a relationship in order to follow Jesus. But watch what happens when the disciples do exactly what Jesus told them to do. Because verse 6 continues, When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. So they got this net full of fish, and they can't even get it into the boat. Now, this isn't, of course, the first time that this has happened. Luke 5 records a similar miraculous catch of fish that was ultimately instrumental in Simon, James, and John following Jesus in the first place. And on that occasion, Jesus commissioned Simon Peter and said, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And I'm sure John, in this instance, flashes back to that event and then immediately recognizes a stranger on the shore and goes, it is the Lord. Why? Because only God could do this. And so Peter, being Peter, quickly wraps his outer garment around him, cannonballs into the water, it doesn't actually say that. I mean, given the type of person Peter was, that was probably what he did. And he swims quickly to shore. The others follow in the boat, dragging this net full of fish. And when they get there, they discover that Jesus had already prepared breakfast for them. But Jesus tells them to bring the fish that they just caught. And so Peter goes back to the boat and drags the net to shore. And the text specifically says, verse 11, It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Now, in that one verse, there's two little details, right? And I'll come to the 153. But this aspect of the net was not torn. I'm like, well, why would John include that? Just seems like this small little detail. But I think John was again saying, only God. Not only did God provide the miraculous catch of fish, he was actually protecting the catch of fish. Because if they were dragging this net to shore and the net ripped open, what happens? All the fish escape. Now, there had been lots of speculation about the significance of the 153 fish. Numerous theories about the symbolism of the number have been put forward. Can I tell you what I think the 153 means? Are you ready? This is just as mind-blowing. It means they counted. I mean, come on, right? They're fishermen. They knew how the conversation would go. They get back to town. Well, how did it go today? Absolutely amazing. Miraculous, really. We caught the biggest haul of fish ever. Really? Well, how many? Oh, I'm not sure. Just lots. There was so many. But the nets didn't rip. Yeah, sure. We believe you. But if they say we caught 153 large fish, it adds some credibility to their story. But here's what it really means. It is the Lord. Only God. 
God's favor, God's blessing, God's abundance, God's provision, God's response to their obedience. And the truth is that God can and wants to make each of us productive. He wants us to bear fruit, but we can't do this on our own. We do this with his help, following his direction. We simply obey and we trust him to provide. Now, there is, of course, symbolism in the catching of the fish. It is a metaphor for the purpose of the church, and the disciples in the boat are a picture of the church at work in the world. And it's just a simple reminder for us this morning, friends, that one of the primary tasks of the church is evangelism. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here in John, ends with instruction for the work Jesus' followers must now be involved in. The church must continue to throw the net out so that more and more people can be introduced to Jesus. Friends, this shouldn't surprise you, but TCC doesn't exist for itself. It exists so that people can come to know Jesus, walk with Jesus, and to share Jesus. And as we're faithful in sharing Jesus, we believe that God ultimately will draw people to himself. They'll come to know Jesus, and they too then will walk with Jesus, and they too will share Jesus with others. But church, listen. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Those should be familiar words from John 15, verse 5. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And the disciples fishing all night and catching nothing is an illustration of this. And Jesus shows up and says, just try the other side and look at what happens. Only God. Friends, the growth that we have experienced at TCC is simply a testimony of God's faithfulness. This is only God. It's not our strategies. It's not our methodologies. It's not our ingenuity. As I shared the story of brunch, I always laugh because we just kind of stumbled upon it by accident. And now it creates this amazing space of community where people can connect and and you know you have a choice right you can come and you can leave right after the service or you can come and stay and sit with maybe complete strangers and just get to know another person or two and then the next week maybe another person or two but it's a story of only God what we need to say friends about TCC is It is the Lord. And the story of TCC has very much been when we're kind of fishing on this side of the boat, Jesus comes along and says, well, try the other side. In the first summer, I was saying earlier, the church was averaging about 25 to 30 people. You know how we know that? They counted. (laughs) Last Sunday, we had 688 people in attendance in person with the kids at church. You know how we know that? Because we counted. In 2015, within three years of moving into this building, we were seriously considering another service. Why? 
because we wanted more people to hear about Jesus. But Jesus came along and said, throw your net on the other side of the hende. And we did. We blessed and sent out almost 100 people to start Southwest Community Church. And God has been so faithful. Because not only now is that church growing and thriving, had a difficult season through COVID, as many churches did. But God has been faithful. And now we find ourselves again in this posture of praying and asking God for direction. What now? What's next? So I just remind you, apart from God, we can't do anything. And so we follow, we obey, we trust. Right? There's no other way. Trust and obey. Rest and depend. But church, let me be clear that what we do as a church is not about getting bigger. It's not about the numbers. We don't want to attract a crowd. But what we do want to do is invite people into a relationship with Jesus, where they walk intimately with him in the company of others so that we might be spiritually formed, transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. And if that mission resonates with people and they're drawn to connect here, then that's fantastic. It's wonderful. But those numbers simply reflect what God has done and continues to do. But we must have the priority of evangelism in our church, both in our own lives and in the life of the church. So the disciples were fishing with Jesus, and the disciples had breakfast with Jesus. We have already seen how Jesus served his disciples breakfast. Verse 12 hints that there may not have been much conversation. The disciples seemed a little overwhelmed at what they had just experienced. So there's probably this awkward silence. But can you just for a moment imagine what was going through Peter's mind as he sat there on the beach eating his fish and bread for breakfast? This is Peter who had earlier confessed after Jesus asked, who do you say I am? In Matthew 16, 16, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then in John 13, verse 37, he made this bold declaration, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Now, you probably know how that turned out. After he said that, Jesus then predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows. And the last time Peter is seen standing around a charcoal fire is when he then denied knowing Jesus. And Luke records that when the rooster crowed on the third denial, the Lord, after he had already been arrested, was present there in the courtyard, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine? He didn't need to say anything. And Peter in that moment was absolutely broken. And Luke twenty two sixty two says, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Of course he would. He understood how he declared who Jesus was and the bold commitments that he had made. And now when push came to shove and the temperature was turned up a little bit, he utterly failed. 
But this failure, again, was part of God's preparation for Peter because he knew that leadership requires humility. And now here on the beach around another charcoal fire, Peter must have been having flashbacks. There's no way he would have forgotten that experience. It was only a couple of weeks earlier. He probably was rehearsing in his own mind how he had failed Jesus, how he had denied knowing him, and all of the guilt and the shame came flooding into his mind, and he probably wondered if he would ever be useful again. And in verse 15, Jesus breaks the silence, and he starts a conversation with Peter. When they had finished eating, Simon said to, sorry, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's not a casual start to the conversation. There's a seriousness in Jesus' voice. He formally addresses Peter with the name that he used before he had met Jesus, Simon, son of John. And Peter's heart began to race, his stomach churned, his eyes probably got a little misty. Do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus meant by these, but I think we can safely assume that he may have pointed at all the other disciples. Do you love me more than these? Maybe he, he pointed at the fish, like, do you love me more than these? Or the nets, do you love, or the boats, do you love me more than these? It was a fair question. Because Peter had returned to fishing along with some of the other disciples, and perhaps now Jesus was calling him again, to make a choice. Do you love your career? Do you love your friends? Or are you willing to be my disciple? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And John adds the detail, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus commissioned Peter to love and care and tend to his flock. So Jesus is restoring Peter. He's direct, but he's kind. He's speaking the truth in love. And Jesus knows that Peter is still a man of faith and commitment. Even though he sinned and fell hard, Jesus is giving Peter a second chance. Although it's not without some hurt and grief, because when, Peter, when Jesus asked Peter the third time, do you love me, it cuts to Peter's heart because it was a clear reminder of the fact that Peter had denied Jesus three times earlier. And Jesus was making it clear to Peter and to us that before serving God, we must love him with all our hearts. You see, loving Jesus is, in fact, our highest and greatest priority. 
And as followers of Jesus, we're called to serve others. But it's so easy to put our priority on serving rather than on loving God. And sometimes even the strategies and techniques become our primary focus. And we know that the great great commandment is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And nothing is more important than loving God. Yes, he wants us to do, to feed his sheep, but he wants us to be before we do that we love God first. Friends, can you imagine yourself standing alone with Jesus? He's looking right at you with knowing eyes, and he asks you today, do you love me? Without comparing yourself to anyone else, do you really love me? And how do we love Jesus more than anything? I'd say, first of all, we need to be absolutely honest about our love for him. Which means we need to take a bit of an inventory. Is there anything else that we love more than Jesus? Who or what else do we love? And do we love Jesus more than these things? And secondly, we intentionally need to spend time with him. It's true, isn't it? We spend time with those we love. And for the past few years, we have been kind of honing in on what is the discipleship framework for us as a church. Because really, that's what we're called to do, evangelism and discipleship. You see it here in this text. And there are really three elements to our formation as disciples of Jesus. The first is teaching. The second is community. And the third is the practices. All of these things empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we engage in those over time, under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, that's when transformation of our lives takes place. And as we now move beyond 20 years, we will continue to beat this drum. That being a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of his, means that we intentionally have to posture ourselves under solid biblical teaching, we connect in the community of believers, and we engage in spiritual practices. Things like silence and solitude, prayer and scripture, worship and celebration, vocation, which includes this element of stewardship when we know what God has called us to. And Adam's going to speak a little bit about vocation next week, but it includes this element of stewardship where we're, we're given time to serve uh, Jesus, when we're given talents and gifts that we would serve Jesus with, that we're given treasure that we would give for the furtherance of the kingdom. Practices like fasting and engaging in the regular practice of Sabbath every week, setting a day aside, resting from our work. And the discipline of community and justice and evangelism. Now, after Jesus predicts how Peter will die, he once again commands Peter, follow me. And in the closing verses, Jesus makes it clear that Peter should not compare himself to others and that our lives, our service, our good deeds mean nothing without a true love for God. And so friends, living the life 
is simply a life of both evangelism and discipleship. Two sides of the same coin. In my life and in yours and in the life of the church. But only God can bring the fish and only God can transform our lives and only God can do what only God can do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the reminder of your faithfulness and your goodness to us. Father, as we put ourselves in the feet of the disciples, maybe in even the feet of Peter today, and we have this picture of being fishers of men, and we have this invitation that while it's important to serve others, it's more important to love him first. And that our doing comes from our being. That our doing comes from our identity in Christ. And so, Lord, on this day, we just want to say thanks. We want to thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. To each of us and to this church. And we ask, Father, that the ongoing testimony of this church would continue to be only God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.